Well, hello everybody and welcome to the Coaching Uncovered podcast. My name is Brent Davis and I am the host of the podcast. Now, this is a podcast where coaches come to talk about coaching and I'm excited about today's guest because we've finally got a real Australian on. We had a half Australian on a couple of weeks ago, but this time I've got a real Australian on in Peter Knight. Thanks for coming in and having a chat with me, Peter. Oh, my pleasure, Brent. Um, you're someone who I've had great respect for for a long, long time. You've um, been a golf coach that's been extremely helpful in my own personal career in sharing information and sending stuff my way. So um, I'm going to have a, a really good time, I think, today in going through a conversation with you. Sure. I'm looking forward to the conversation myself. <laughs> so for people who don't know who you are, tell everyone a bit about yourself. I've been a PGA member for... Uh, well, since 81 is when I finished my traineeship. So I started in 78. I actually um, enrolled to go to university and I was doing a little bit of part-time work over the Christmas holidays at Huntingdale Golf Club. And uh, I got to a stage where I enrolled to go to Monash and Jeff Flanagan, who was a professional at Huntingdale at the time, asked me if I wanted to begin my traineeship. Now, I'd been a, a multi-sport um, person athlete, if you if I can allow to call myself that, um, up until that time, and golf hadn't been my only sport, and until I said yes to Jeff, um, it wasn't my only sport. And of course, then I dedicated myself solely to golf. So that that was my beginning. Uh, so quite different to what a lot of players do. In fact, probably what most players do now. I think it's really helpful to have a multi sport background, but then. You know, specialization, if it's going to be in golf, would probably come in around about the age of uh, 13, 14 or something like that, depending on the on the person. Uh, whereas I didn't dedicate myself completely to golf until I was 18, so very, very late. I would not advise anybody um, to do what I did uh, simply because now the competition is just so strong that unless you're a, a, a freakish athlete, you just wouldn't stand a chance. So that was my start, 81. And then I began coaching virtually straight away. In fact, I'd started to do a little bit of coaching before I completed my traineeship and then began playing uh, as I think there, there might have been one or two trainees that didn't have aspirations of, of playing and that was definitely not the normal um the normal attitude most of us wanted to play and then most of us also quickly found out that we weren't good enough to play and i was one of those who found out he wasn't good enough to play i'm exactly the same <laughs> yeah and it's a common story and there's um but the effort in trying to find ways to become good to to you know cope with the anxiety of um competing in in tournaments where your game wasn't up to scratch and then, you know, constantly looking for ways to make yourself better, you know, technically, physically, mentally. Um, they were the things that became the foundation for coaching because now it's, particularly with good players, it's sort of like, well, I can take the things that um, were challenges for me and understand that they're going to be challenges for most other players too, even if their skill level is quite high. We're going to have similar um, sim face similar challenges, particularly you know competing in in a, in what can be quite a lonely sport. You know, there's no there's no team, say on the on the golf course to help you. There there might be behind the scenes, but they're not hitting shots for you. So it is so it is quite different. Then after I completed my traineeship, started coaching. Then I moved into doing a whole range of stuff. Uh, I was a club pro at a golf club called Amstel Golf Club down in Melbourne. That was after I'd uh, coached at a number of different golf clubs. And then uh, the pioneering stuff started. I got a call about a development in Port Douglas called Mirage. And I was asked if I'd uh, be keen to go up there and help set up the golf operation there, which I did. And that was quite pioneering stuff because I think the only, uh, the only resort type operation that was in Australia prior to that was Sanctuary Cove. So that was very, very new. And then I was there for a couple of years and Christopher Scase left the country and most of us <laughs> lost our jobs <laughs> when I was one of them. Um, and so then I went to Paradise Palms, which is in Cairns, and I went there pre-opening uh, and it was, a, it was a similar type setup. 
where it was sort of all brand new, quite resorty. And I was there for four years before I got a call from New South Wales Golf asking if I'd be their um, state coaching director. So I, I was in New South Wales for 14 years. And from 97, the last nine years of that was with New South Wales Golf and also with New South Wales Institute of Sport. And then at the end of that time, I came back to Melbourne and okay. uh, was with Golf Australia as National Coaching Director for three years. And now I'm doing what most of us coaches do, which is teaching at a golf course on a range at Yarra Bend, and I am absolutely loving it, except for the, at the moment because everything's closed. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's always obviously a challenging time for golf coaches at the moment, and we'll certainly get to where your coaching programs are. But um, that you threw me there when you said you were in Port Douglas. I didn't have any idea you were up there early on. So you said early 80s, so that's prior to Skins games and all that kind of stuff up there? or No, that was while we were up there. I actually went up there late 1987. Okay. Yeah. So that was when they had the, the 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 shark and all the all the huge names playing up there for the fortune or playing for all uh, Christopher Scase's cash, which obviously didn't pan out so well for him in the end. No, no, ultimately not. Yeah, that we had skins matches. We had the uh, golf ashes. Uh, oh yes, there was too. That was uh, guys and girls, wasn't it? That one, I think. Uh, not guys and girls. That was just was guys. Nice. Yeah. Okay. There's Australian team and a UK was it UK and and Europe? I'm not quite sure. What I'm not sure either. But it, it might have been you know it might have been United Kingdom. So it was England, Ireland, uh, Scotland, and Wales. Yeah. No, that's that. That is pretty cool. Mm. So that's um that's good. So I I was keen to actually start the conversation back when you're in you're in New South Wales because I got a bit of a story that um you brought the New South Wales state team to Albury at some stage and I was a junior golfer at the time so um, you brought the I think it was guys like um, Deep and um, who else would have been uh, um, Bryce who else was in the state team back then Um, I can't even recall some of the names but you brought those guys down Mm -hmm. to to do some coaching and exhibition golf in Albury and my one um, recollection of what happened was you we played a grass green course on one day and then we took the state team out to a sand green course on the second day and back then they only had the wound golf balls and they were using the range balls because they didn't have anything else to actually play on the sand greens with yeah we they were promotional tours and we did four of those each year and typically what we'd do is fly in a light airplane piloted by lester peterson who was one of the state team members and also a pilot Uh, so we would go somewhere on a friday evening and have dinner at, at the golf club, let's say it's Albury Golf Club. The following day, I'd run a clinic in the morning and then the state players would, uh, four male players and two female players would um, would play. Most of the time, we would play sand green courses. And what we do is we would have different players going to different places. So most of the time, the players that did go with us were experiencing sand greens for the first time, which was always always pretty funny. So it sounded like when we were at Albury, we had a number of those who hadn't played sand greens before. <laughs> they had they had zero clue on how to how to play sand greens. It was it was quite uh, quite fun to watch. Yeah, but that was um yeah, and that's that's a, that's a type of thing that sticks in your head as as a junior golfer. So for for me personally, I was probably 14, 15, 16 years of age and I got to see those those big name state players playing golf. That was pretty cool. And um for them to come and see a high quality coach and high quality players come out as a junior golfer, that was that was a pretty cool experience. Yeah, one of the things that I always said to the the players pretty much as a a a standard statement to them as a group before we went is that it doesn't matter what they do, they're going to leave an impression on the people, whether they're junior golfers or, you know, senior golfers or anybody else, because it's going to be a, you know, a, high, a golfing highlight for those people to see them. And so they're going to be considered role models, whether or not they like it. And, you know, just to be mindful of the impression that they want to leave. And we had, we had fantastic times and the players that, that went out were like so good to the locals and, and the, the juniors as well, which is really good. 
no, that was that was a, 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 a sort of a, a cool experience. So, you, you spoke now that you're you're coaching in Melbourne. Um, how do you set up your your coaching programs? Do you do the typical standard individual golf lessons, or have you got programs set up, or do you do subscription based stuff? How do you tend to set up your coaching programs for your clients? Mostly, it's one on one coaching, and that one on one coaching can be. I think my youngest client is four years old uh, and the oldest would be uh, certainly in in their 80s from raw beginners right through to professional golfers and so the the flexibility that you have to have in your coaching your communication style your messaging your use of words drills and things like that needs to be um, pretty broad with with having a range like that. So most of what I do is one on one, but I also run a couple of master classes. So once a month, I'll run a three hour class just on putting, and a three hour class just on short game. So aside from that, I do have some online offerings, which up until up until the last few weeks um, have just been a very small part of the business. So just on that online coaching, how did you set that up? Is that just stuff that you filmed personally or do you get a company in to help you with that or is that something that you did by yourself? There are different online platforms that you can use uh, now. There, there's quite a few of them. I use two in particular. There's, there's Well, there's really three that I use, but um, one I use is called Coach Now. And if you think of, say, a, a platform like, uh, Google Drive or Dropbox or something like that, where you can keep all of your files in one place. Imagine a platform where each player has their own file. And so they can keep all of the communications, videos and everything in one place for them. So it's so that's a really good setup. Uh, the other two that I use, uh, there was one, um, was one called ProGolfMe which is uh, put together uh, by uh, a guy who's he's actually now in New Zealand. That's one platform. I don't use that a whole lot, um, but the one that I do use quite a lot is called Skillist, which is um, the creation of a couple of guys in Melbourne. Yeah, Baden Schaff is one of them. So, uh, And he's done very, very well. He's, it's a really good platform, uh, very easy tools to use, easy communication with clients. Um, so yeah, th- so they're the two main ones that I use. One called Coach Now, and uh, one called Skillist. I think the, they're they're obviously good apps. That Coach Now one's come up a lot in the, talking talked into to coaches on this podcast, and mm-hmm. um, Skillist is obviously a real nice easy easy tool. So I also saw that you've got some online coaching courses that you sell on your site. So how did you build those courses? Uh, I. I built everything myself. Obviously, the platform that I put it on is a, a third-party platform. Um, at the moment, I just have one, which is on a strategy, so golf strategy. It's a 17-video course. And so I, I did all of that myself, you know, storyboarded what I want to, what I wanted to do, the different chapters, so a chapter is a, is a video. Um, did all the recording myself, had a little bit of help with some of the recording initially, and then did all of the editing and uploading and marketing of that. I'm a one-man band, did the whole yeah, thing wow. myself. <laughs> <laughs> that would um, – developing skills certainly in that area at the same time as well, mm. I'm sure. Yeah, I, I release a video on YouTube every week. So, And I, there's, I don't know, there's well over 250 videos there. So that's, um, you know, about six years' worth. So I've, I've, been, yeah, I've been doing this sort of thing for quite a long time. So for any young coaches out there that are keen to start getting themselves on social platforms and doing their own e- editing and recording, what type of setup do you do you actually use to do that? For the YouTube videos, I use two cameras. I use a a, uh, a, a normal DSLR camera, so I guess a camera camera. And I also use a my phone as a second camera. And then I also I have a, a wireless lapel mic as well. So, you know, I don't have to worry about leads or anything like that. So I do the filming and then I um, edit it 
through a, an editing platform that I've got on my computer and then put it all together, uh, add in any other bits and pieces which you would do in the editing process, upload it to YouTube. And then there's things like, for those who are, who are interested in doing that sort of thing, things like creating a creation of thumbnails, the, uh, the behind-the-scenes stuff, the metadata stuff. So that's going to be things like tags, how you write up a description, and all of those sort of things go to um, helping you to get views and get subscribers. And particularly when you're small fry like, like me, um, you know, I'm sort of closing in on 10,000 subscribers on YouTube, which is, which is pretty healthy. But by international standards, it's like I'm a minnow <laughs> in, yep. a, in, a, in a sea of whales. And that's, again, but so self-taught skills just by jumping on Google and finding things yourself or did you do a course or how did you build those skills in, in, into your skill set? Mostly made a lot of mistakes. Some of them I I actually found, yes, through Googling information and uh, a lot of trial and error. So, yeah. I mean, this, my skill set in doing all those things now is pretty broad and I can do, I can create things create videos fairly quickly um, but it's taken some time it's taken some time to get traction it's taken some time to, for my skill levels to become uh, pretty much streamlined to know what works how to work it and how basically how not to waste time uh, it's extremely important i think to cut the stress to coaches out there that it does take time like I'm, I'm in that same boat now with this podcast as i've started it off i've done six or seven episodes and I think I've had about 700 downloads total. So that's not huge by any stretch, but you stick with it and persevere with it. It'll continue to grow if you put out a, a good product and if, if evolve and change as you correct things that you've done wrong, it'll, it'll only get better. It will. And it's timely probably that you're asking this question now because I began the um, my current YouTube channel because I've had YouTube channels before. I started the current one in 2013. And the objective was to build a client base and, and, and help me with my individual coaching. Um, at Yarra Bend, we'd been there at that stage, I think, about three years, but there's still, it was a very, very young coaching business. So sort of looking for ways to, to try and increase your market, increase your, your reach so that you're, you're promoting to more people. So I started the, the current YouTube channel and then from 2013 to 2016, I would say I probably had, a, it took me about three years to get 1,000 subscribers. Then from 2016 to about November, October and November last year, I'd added about another 2,500. So it was, you know, I'd, I'd tripled my subscribers, but, you know, triple one is three. So it's not, it, <laughs> it's still not much. Then I had a video go absolutely crazy. And so from November last year to uh, for the next five months, I gained about 6,000, 6,500 subscribers. So it just went, uh -huh. yeah, it went crazy. So um, I wasn't in it initially to be in the, the race to try and build subscribers. It becomes a little bit of a game and it's, it's really nice when you do, but it was really just to create another form of promotion. So for any guys looking to do something like that, definitely do it. Um, don't worry about how you think you sound, what you look like on the camera or anything like that because I look back at some of the early footage and early videos that I did and cringe but if you do what you would do as a player, which is just review your performance uh, as the videos come out, think about how you might be able to do them better, and that might be the words you use, the way you do demonstrations, the way you use the camera, what you do in editing. There's a whole list of things. You just you continually get better until the product is actually quite uh, quite good, and then you get to the yeah. stage where people really do start following. And then that's going to reflect in your coaching business too, because I would say probably thirty percent of my coaching. And here's the here's the thing for for all the other coaches that are considering doing it. I would get thirty percent of my new clientele directly through what I do online. 
in, in way of promotion and probably 70% is word of mouth. And then that is 100%, but there's, there's going to be a tiny percentage of um, people that find me in other ways. And I would I would tend to think that that thirty percent is only going to grow. My my ten year old um, got a PlayStation for Christmas a few years ago, and he knew exactly how to play it based on watching YouTube videos. So hmm. the kids these days they learn how to do new things by watching YouTube videos. So I think that thirty percent will only get higher and higher. Yeah. Um, I heard a thing on a podcast the other day saying that complete is better than perfect so i think that's a good way to think about getting your online stuff out there getting it started getting it out there and then continue to change it and get improve it as you go along but getting it started is that that big first step it really is and it's so easy to to not do it because you don't think that you're going to get it right you know there's so many i mean the blocks that we put up typically are blocks that we just we place on ourselves um you know I want to do a video, I want to create a, a video, I want to create a podcast, I want to create a blog, I don't know what to write about, I don't know how to film it, I don't know what to say. And so you, you typically you'll spin your own wheels and eventually when you do bite the bullet, often you'll sort of think, in fact, I think in every case, the person will think, why didn't I just do it when I first had the idea? It's actually not that scary. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that yeah. is awesome advice. I think that's really important for people. Just give it a go, give it a crack. Hmm. I'm doing the same thing with my podcast, as I said this this way, and um, yeah, it's certainly the way to get going. So, if curious about, you said that you obviously went into that golf ops type role early on in your career, but got into high performance coaching really early, which. Um, uh, to me, is kind of uh, a bit exceptional. So, how did you get into that high performance space so quickly in your career? Uh, to be honest, I don't know um, because there's there's always going to be an element of luck, particularly in the high performance space. So, if we're talking, you know, state level or uh, institute of sport level, there's an element of being in the right place at the right time. Um, but there's also the things that you can do that are actually going to mean that when that opportunity comes, you're there and you're prepared. So right from when I was playing, even before I was playing, I've sort of always been a student of of whatever sport I was playing. So um, and when it became golf, I wanted to know everything about the game. Um, when, it, when it became about coaching, then I wanted to not just know everything about the game, but I wanted to know about coaching. And so much of what I've learned has actually come from outside of the um, the golfing sphere. Yeah, so I've attended you know so many uh, coaching summits, PGA coaching summits, but I've also done a lot of other things, and I've done courses outside of that. And I think that's the important thing because then you can um, think about how you might apply. A set of skills such as if let's say you do you know a sports psychology course a strength and conditioning training course or um nlp which neuro-linguistic programming and then sort of saying well what i learned where i learned that wasn't in a sporting context but how would i then apply those principles back into my sport and and then a lot you know a lot of very wide I, i'd like to think of myself as very widely read on a whole range of topics and again, there's that filter question running whenever I'm watching something, whether I'm whether I'm reading something, studying. How do I apply this um, in the golf coaching setting? So oh, that's so cool. Yeah, and and I think if you do enough of that over time, then when an opportunity does present itself, you don't have to go a mad scramble trying to think what am I going to do and how am I going to do it. You've got to, you know, I had pretty good ideas. Um, when I was offered those opportunities about how I would go about doing what I do. That's not to say that once I started, I realised that um, your initial thoughts are never how they pan out 12 or 18 months down the track. Yeah, I know. I've had that. I've brought this comment up several times on the on the podcast that my first taste of that high-performance space, um, my coaching evolved really quickly because yeah. I worked out that some of the stuff I was coaching was incorrect because I had players that could actually do what I was telling them to do and it didn't quite work out. So yeah. how did your coaching change? So you obviously got in that space early. Um, yeah. I'm sure there were some changes made to your coaching based on that. So talk me through how your coaching evolved over that experience. I can't be specific only because 
it happened, you know, sometimes there were things that happened on the spot and other times there were things that sort of happened over time. But just the the search for um, if I'm working with a player and I'm, I'm not necessarily talking good players, but doing a, a review afterwards, you know, one of the worst feelings is completing a, a coaching session, whether that's with a, a team, a squad or an individual, doesn't matter what level they are, and having a, a feeling that, you know, I didn't, I didn't, perform as well as I would like to have. In other words, I haven't helped the player as much as I wanted to in that time. And then the reflection the reflection after that to say, what could I have done better? Is it something that I said incorrectly? Was it wrong technical information? Did I not deliver the message correctly? And so, and then try to find the answers to those through, um, you know, extra reading, extra studying, asking questions, all those sorts of things. And it's just the accumulation of, of all of those things that, which, I mean, we call it experience, but it's, they're the things that, that change how you do what you do. You, you said you've had exposure to other areas as well. So that's obviously really important as a coach, I think, mm-hmm. is to be open to other other ideas from other sports, other coaches, other people, other other areas of expertise i think is important as a coach as well oh absolutely look i've been really fortunate particularly when new south wales institute of sport opened up um you know i've got plenty of golf coaches that i that i have spoken to and still do speak to on a on a regular basis and i've learned a lot from like so many of our peers going to the new south wales institute of sport opened up a whole new field of sports science so i'd have a range of people in different fields, you know, doctors, physiotherapists, uh, exercise physiologists, uh, sports uh, sports biomechanists, coaches from other sports, which are hugely influential. Um, so the combination of, of all of those things and even just sort of having coffee chats, you know, I, I would go into the Institute early. Um, so let's say we had a scheduled start time of, we'll, we'll say, 9 o'clock. Then I might get in there at seven and speak to the strength and conditioning coach, and then speak, go and speak to someone else prior to the working day beginning. So, uh, and they're all. It was almost like like free education going and speaking to those people all the time, and like that was just so invaluable. And then uh, when an opportunity came up with Golf Australia and the AIS, I did the same thing there. I'm extremely jealous that you had that chance to be able to speak to those outside outside people because just as a general observation, I think successful coaches in all sports are open to other other outside-the-box ideas and you, you hear that and you see that all the time. So to have instant access to those type of people on your doorstep, um, I'm extremely jealous of that. Yeah, and look, I recognise like how great an opportunity it was. I had 12 years of that and that was – you know, 12 years of access to like world-class professionals in their respective fields. And I, that, the, the, um, the knowledge of that unique opportunity was never, ever lost on me. No, I completely hate you now. I th- thought you were such a decent guy and now I, I don't like you at all because I've heard all these stories and I, I don't like you at it anymore. So no, that's you've, done with. You've, my job's done. You've made my day. Yeah, that's it. Um, You spoke earlier about NLP. So you've got um, qualifications in that field. Can you explain Mm -hmm. what that is to everyone out there? Yeah, NLP, neuro-linguistic programming, it's really a field um, that originated out of the curiosity of uh, two American guys, one named Richard Bandler and one named John Grinder. And they wanted to know what, what made up excellence? Why were people who were exceptional in their field exceptional in their field? What was it about them that made them as good as what they were? And the way that they tested that was by modelling the behaviours of those those people, those coaches, those exemplars, those, pe- those people who were performing really, really well. And so they, they built this field around essentially modelling human behaviour modeling human thinking modeling human um, means of, of uh, communication and since that time nlp has sort of taken on a bit of a 
um, it, it's got a bit of a bad rap in some fields because it's been used almost manipulatively with with apologies to those who do all the training but things like sales you know how can we make people want to buy from us what what messages can we embed into our into our um into the way we speak the way we present things to make people influence people to want to buy from us that sort of thing gave it sort of a bad name but essentially it's really about considering you know what makes people really good at what they do that that was the basis of it and i had spoken with someone who was applying it in the sports setting and also doing trainings and me being me i didn't want to find out how it was applied in sport i wanted to understand the principles behind it and so i started doing uh training with a company called inspirative in sydney uh, and they they still exist and still do trainings, and it was again learning the principles of in the, of that field, and then applying it back to what I do with. But essentially, it's mostly about communication, and different ways of communication. Okay, which is, again, is a, it's a common theme that's coming up in the podcast as well that you can have all the info in the world. If you can't communicate it to the student in front of you, then it isn't going to help that person in front of you. And I would tend to think that. NLP is just a tool, same as TrackMan's a tool, same as videos a tool. If you don't use it correctly, then you're going to have problems with it. So it's all about how you apply it as a coach, I would think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's there's no question about that. It's um, I actually I actually describe it as a communication tool. You know what, what makes good communication? Well, listening is number one, and then if you do say something, then noticing how that message has been received. And if the message hasn't been received uh, in a way that you think is the way that you want it to be received, then it's your responsibility to do something differently. And so much of that forms the basis of what NLP is, which is when I say it like that, it's really just it's good communication. That's it. Have you found that that's changed over the years? So you've obviously been around golf for a fairly long time. So do you find that when you first started out, it was, okay, the coach will tell you how to do it and if if you don't get it or apply it properly, it's your fault as a player, whereas these days it's more about the coach explaining it properly? Um, I don't think it's changed. It's more it's case by case or coach by coach. Uh, uh, you know, some coaches are more tellers. You know, they'll, they'll tell you what to do. Uh, others are more collaborative. And if we look at the, and, and I'm both. You know, if I've got a a very young player, then I'm telling them what I want them to do. But the coaching relationship changes over time, and it mostly begins as a telling because a player wants that information, and then over time it becomes more collaborative because the player begins to understand the influences on um on on the ball and on the and what happens in the game they understand what happens in their own golf swings they have a better understanding of what they want to achieve their their goals both as a as a performer and as a technician and then eventually gets to the stage at the highest levels where um the player actually becomes the director and you're really trying to support that player but they are they are basically the ones who are making most of the decisions so um there have been a number of coaches that over time and i sort of think of uh two of my peers actually steve Bann and dale lynch who've had players come to them as very young players and they've worked right through all three of those stages until they're tour professionals and then at that stage the coach is really the supporter for the for the player so so your role as a coach changes over time it doesn't quite answer your question because i think some of us are predominantly tellers anyway we and some of us are predominantly uh you know listeners and collaborators uh, but you've you've pretty much got to be one of those two until the player becomes very very good no, I, I completely like that idea that we we and again it comes down to if you're a high quality coach or a high quality person in this space, you have to be able to adapt to the person standing in front of you. You need to be able to coach that person the way that they need to be coached. It isn't about having one set way of doing things. Yeah, I, 
I sort of look at the coaching. So if I think of my coaching life cycle, I guess, um, when I first started coaching, like most coaches, I guess, I used to think that the answer was always lay in technique. And so when I first started coaching, because that was my filter, I thought the answer always lay in technique, then I was looking always, I would only look for the answer to a golfer's uh, swing problems, swing issues through a, a lens of technique. And what would happen is um, if they were if they were creating a, a poor shot, then I would, as a coach, I would try and do something and it was always technical. Now, the problem with that is I'd finish up spinning my wheels and trying all sorts of different things and, you know, just really making a mess of a lot of early lessons. And then at some point I realised, you know, there's more to this coaching caper than just technique. You know, there's other things that I need to consider. I need to consider strategy. I need to consider how the player practices. I need to consider um, mental skills. I need to consider physical skills. And so now I've got like a bigger toolkit to draw from. But still, there's some gaps in in what I'm doing. So the next stage is I realize that I've actually got to apply what I know specific to this person. In other words, rather than having a um, like a, a cookie cutter approach, which I might have in stage two with a whole range of information, now I actually need to recognize that what I teach has to be specific to this player in front of me. Now, maybe I'm slow and it sounds so obvious now, but they're the errors that I made. And, and, and I think most coaches do make. Then there's a final stage. And the final stage is I'm a coach. And golf just happens to be the vehicle through which I coach. And that's a very different mindset. So all of a sudden, it's about the person in front of me, whether they're a golfer or not. They're obviously, they're always going to be a golfer, but, but, it, but I'm coaching a person. I'm not coaching a golfer. I'm not co- definitely not coaching a golf swing, but it's coaching the person. The faster a coach can look to transition through, recognize that there, that there is a coaching process um, and they need to consider themselves as a coach first and foremost rather than you know a technician or whatever, the faster, the faster they're going to be really good. Oh, that's that's a really cool answer. I think that'll get a whole lot of coaches out there thinking about it. Um, I, my own personal experience, I would tend to think that I was probably certainly a technique heavy coach early on, and I think that's probably pretty pretty standard with golf coaches. Um, I would think so. Because you you're generally coming from a playing background, where and if you're an older coach, it's probably it is probably pretty heavily focused on technique early mm. on, and then you probably just uh, that comes through when you're coaching early on. But I think that, as you said, the sooner you can come to the conclusion that it is more to it than just golf swing, mm. the um, the, f- the quicker you'll improve as a golf coach. So, yeah. great advice there. So that was that was really cool. So completely through my 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 questioning by going down that path. Yeah, that man, was, I'm really um, having a good day today. Then. No, that was that was great though. As I said, I'm gonna. I think I said to you off air before we started that it's going to have to be a second part to this podcast. I think because we've got so much information to to cover with you. But um, I'm interested also in obviously you've got a, a fairly high high performance background. How you bring some of that high performance coaching or the strategies and skills you you built up in that area into your average everyday player on the coaching team. Uh- it's it's a, if we go straight to that what I said before about that level four that I'm a coach and I just I work with um, I work with the person who's in front of me and whatever they bring, then having that understanding of of you know high performance and everything that goes with it, um, it means that the principles that I have that understanding that I have I then apply to you know whatever, whoever's in front of me. And I think having having a, a like a deep understanding of all of the different aspects of coaching means that I can deliver a message very simply. In fact, that's the goal: is to deliver a message very, very simply. And and if you've got a, a, a someone in front of you who is certainly under ten, under ten years old, then it's one thing, and you're just repeating that. And so that's you know, so different to sort of thinking about I need, you know, all of this different 
statistical information, all of this different physiological information about this player before I actually make a decision. Um, so, so having that that breadth of knowledge helps that for I like to think it helps that four year old because I can keep the message simple and only tell them one thing because I know the influence that that's likely to have on what they on, on how their golf evolves from there. Yeah, so it's sort of it's like it's always there. It's a bit yeah. like a it's a bit like a mathematician, a um, you know, someone with a PhD in pure or applied mathematics, and they go to the shop and they're told you know something costs seven dollars ninety eight, and they well round it up to eight bucks, and they give the purse the the cashier gives them three dollars change, and they instantly know it was that's the wrong change and they give a dollar back. So they might have a PhD in pure and applied mathematics, but all they've done is um, figured out that $10 minus 7 is actually, um, sorry, $10 minus 8 is 2 <laughs> and not 3. So they're only using what they need. And I'd like to think that's how it works in golf as well. Yeah, I would, I would tend to be on the same kind of page. So having that t- deeper understanding of of golf and coaching and then being able to simplify it for that player in front of you, I think it's probably an easier way to go than, than vice versa, having that general understanding and trying to upskill it to someone who is after extra information. That would be a challenge, I think, as a coach. It is, and it, it usually it usually results in the player recognising that, you know, maybe you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, no, I, yeah. Would, I would t- tend to agree with the that one. Player so, will see through you very quickly. Yeah, player so at no, any think, level, really, any age, any level. Yeah, that that, that makes sense. Now, mm. um, just back on the high performance space as well. You've coached overseas. You've been overseas in Taiwan, and I've had that experience as well. Yeah. So, how did you find dealing with those type of players? Obviously, they 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 are good players, but obviously dealing with cultural influences and language barriers how did you find coaching over there i really enjoyed it i the players uh when i first went over to to taiwan which was late 2013 um the players in the group were aged between say 15 and 21 i'll say some of them had really good english skills um but the majority were either like really poor with their English or their English was so-so but they were quite reluctant to use it. And so uh, I had an interpreter when I was there but I, I sort of thought, well, if I'm going to make a connection with these students, these these players, then if I can learn some of their language and just trip over myself, make so many mistakes in trying to communicate with them in Mandarin, um, then it sort of gives them permission to do the same in English. And so that, that was one of the things that I did in order to, to make a connection with the players. Um, other than that, a lot of it was really just sort of slowly gaining their confidence. So I did a lot of work that wasn't necessarily hugely technical to start with, so I'd, I'd get them competing against each other a whole lot um, and then sort of giving them information that might help them a little bit. I'd give them a lot of, uh, I, I do quite a few, a lot of presentations around like non-technical golf stuff. So it might be, you know, developing mental skills and um, looking at strategies, how they can manage themselves in different situations, um, encouraging the physical stuff, which is actually pretty easy for them because they were they were fairly compliant when it came to doing physical stuff. So it was sort of slowly gaining their gaining their trust over time. Yeah, but I, no, the, but I still enjoyed it. The parents weren't uh, around too much because they were it was they were living camps. But then I got to know some of the parents as well, and you know the parents, like all parents, want the best for their their sons and daughters. Um, and for the most part, that was always like really quite helpful to me. And I, I would include them. For the most part, there were a couple of times where I didn't handle those things well, um, and you know, same as I said before, you reflect on that, and if you can, if you can make amends, do so. Um, but yeah, 
we all we still make mistakes. Yeah, as I said, I had, a, had an awesome time over there as well, and um, I was over there a bit before you, and um, so we had obviously had different players over there, but yeah, certainly um, emphasise the same things that you said. Is um, I found the same thing too with with the kids is the ones that spoke good English were great, and the ones that didn't speak any English, you could work with the, with the translator and be mm. fine. But the ones that half spoke it, they would they just they didn't seem to have the confidence mm. to speak up. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And, and was, that's, um, that it, may be an age thing and it may be a cultural thing, a probably a combination of the two. And and that's why I started, you know, speaking a little bit of Mandarin too. Well, at the start it was, it, was, it was almost nothing and just make horrible mistakes, of course, that I didn't even know I was making. But, again, that was just to let them relax a little bit, I guess. You were certainly more skilled than me. I think I can count to ten and swear, and that's about it. That's about the only ones I picked up when I was <laughs> over there. So it was um, it was certainly a challenge. But um, well, Peter, I've kept you for plenty of time at the moment. So I think we're going to have to get you back for a second episode at some point in time because I've still got a lot more questions to go. But before I let you go, we have a a, f- a series of fast four questions that I ask everybody on the podcast. So sure. I want to ask those questions to you now. Yep. So so the first one is what advice would you have for a young coach starting out at the moment coach get as much experience as you possibly can and then and i still do this is self-reflect so i've got about an hour's commute home each day and there'll be days where where the lessons all seem to go really well um and you sort of get a bit of a feel for that as well not just from the response with the, the from the player but also you know how they're hitting the ball and all that sort of thing and so there then there are also days that where i've given lessons and i'll sort of think you know that wasn't as good as i didn't get the result that i thought that i would probably have got with that person so that self-reflection and then as and then it's going back to the you know the questions that i've sort of asked ever since i started coaching you know what was missing was it the way i communicated was it a piece of information um, what can I do to try and upskill myself in that area? You know, do I need to ask questions? Do I need to, say, show the footage of that particular player to another coach or coaches and ask their opinion? So almost like a, you know, informal mentoring, if you like. Uh, and then, you know, just the overriding thought of how can I continue to make myself a great coach um, outside of, outside of the, say, the PGA sphere, you know, what, what can I do to educate myself better? Those sorts of things. So they would be the things that I would um, advise any any coach, young coach or, or experienced coach, is just immerse yourself in doing the things that can help you serve your clients better. That 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 is great advice. I think going back to that self-reflection, I think I'm guilty of this as – Anybody, um, we don't do that often enough as coaches. I think if we can have a formal thing in place where you do that self-reflection and um, go over your coaching sessions and see where you can improve, I think that's a, a huge step forward as a coach. Yeah, and so for, self-reflection is not beating up on yourself. It's it's just sort of answering the question, okay, what am I going to do next time? How can I do it better? How could I have done um, better in that you know today with that particular yeah, I also think that. That you still give yourself a pat on the back for the good things that happened during the oh, day. Absolutely, so, always acknowledge the good. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a hugely important part. So, advice for players out there. Hopefully, there's a few golfers on the podcast as well. So, any advice for players out there? Yeah. Uh, first of all, like learn with the particular shot tendencies that you have. Learn what causes those. You know what's happening with the relationship between the ball and the club at impact that causes those shots. Um, what causes the good shots? The shots that you like to hit. What causes the shot that you don't like? Um, what is? What are your movement patterns that tend to create the shot that you don't like? Or what are the movement patterns that tend to create the shot that you do like? But aside from that, you know learn that there are different ways of practicing. You know, you can you can practice to develop your technique, which is what most players do almost 100% of the time. But that doesn't lead to much of a transfer to the golf course. So then if you're looking to transfer your um, your golf skills to the golf course, well, how do you do that? Well, a second step is to start to build 
a whole lot of variety into what you're doing. So that's going to be uh, shot shaping, hitting to different targets, changing clubs or targets quickly, changing swing speeds. Because every shot you play on the golf course is unique. So the, the greater the range of experiences you have, the better off you are. And I know um, this is actually this is one of the things from the from what I found in Taiwan is that and, and I've seen it here plenty of times too, is that a player has the attitude, I want to perfect this movement. I want to ingrain it into muscle memory, which is a whole lot of rubbish anyway. So the more you can explore the boundaries of um say shot shaping control and all that sort of thing the better off the better you're going to be able to control what you want to do so for example um you know you the listeners are probably familiar with the the nine ball drill which is hitting shots with three different trajectories you know standard trajectory a high trajectory the normal and a lower one than normal with three different shot shapes A, a, a shot that curves to the left flies reasonably straight or curves to the right so, you know, three trajectories, three different shapes, there's nine. So the better a player learns to be able to um, hit those nine different shots, find out which ones are challenging, find out which ones they just cannot do, find out which ones they have they can do easily, and then looking to build those skills, that then transfers to the golf course. And then the final one is actually testing what they do. So an example of that might be in practice, um, say hitting driver at two uh, at a target um, and the target might have boundaries let's say the target's 20 meters wide or 30 meters wide depending on skill level and seeing how many shots out of five you can have land between those two targets going through like full shot routine um, and then hitting the shot waiting a minute and repeating it and so they're actually trying to find ways to put themselves under pressure in practice that is more likely to lead to that that transfer. So understanding there's you know there's different different ways of practicing, that's critical. And then the third thing is for golfers is don't hang around on the range, go and play. The reason you're having lessons, the reason that you're practicing in the first place, is so that you can perform better on the golf course. Whether that's lowering your score, hitting the ball better, or both. Usually. Um, you're only going to find that out on the on the testing ground, and that's the golf course. That's um, certainly a common common comment that's coming up: is get on the golf course and apply your skills. So understand what causes your ball flight, but get on the golf course and apply it. So yeah. just quickly on that, um, it's a whole different conversation. But going back to what you said about the the, the golfers in Taiwan playing perfect golf swing as opposed to playing yeah. golf. Um, do you think that's because and my own theory was the fact that they don't have as much access to a golf course as we do in Australia. So as a kid, I grew up on the golf course and didn't have any real formal coaching until I was maybe 14 or 15 years old, apart from a couple of group clinics with the with the pro. Do you mm. find that, that that was because they grow up playing on the driving range as opposed to playing on the course, that's why they're looking for the perfect golf swing? Possibly. The the players weren't necessarily all after perfect golf swing, but they were after drilling something um you know a hundred times or a thousand times. You know, the, the number of times a player had stand on a putting green and they'd have you know, a dozen golf balls and they just rake a ball over and putt it to a hole, rake it over and putt it. And, and they're not learning anything. And so if they had a dozen balls, then I'd ask them to put 11 of them back in their golf bag and they'd think I was crazy. Yeah. Yeah, because, and, and their thinking was that, you know, if I've got 12 ball, golf balls, then I can hit, you know, five times or the number of balls in practice than if I only had one. That probably the multiple would be higher um, with time. Uh, so changing yeah, that mindset. So I think that's that's part of it. And also the attitude of uh, if it's not working, work harder. And that that in my experience, there's in a lot of places that's the that's the way to become better as if you know if th- if things aren't working if you played poorly you've got to practice harder um, and of course you'd scratch your head and say well you know this player is practicing pretty hard they played really well today so the fact that they didn't have a good round um, you know 
sorry, they played well yesterday. The fact that they didn't have a good round today can't possibly be for the same reason that they haven't hit enough golf balls because they played brilliantly yesterday and the day before. Yeah. No, that, that, I'm glad you had the same issues that I had over in Taiwan because I had a huge problem trying to get them just to, to hit a couple of balls on the putting green as opposed to the 20 that you said they had out there. So yeah. I'm glad that you had the same problems over there. Yeah. Um, so over your career, you've obviously had a long career. Was there anything that you would change or do differently? Early days, I would have asked a lot more questions. Like I, when I was at school, I was the kid who just wouldn't put their hand up and ask a question. Um, and then, I mean, that's changed. But when I first started my coaching, uh, it was the same thing. You know, I, I'd try and figure things out for myself. And yeah, you, you figure it out, but that's the slow road. You know, so the, the only thing I'd really change would be that I would ask more questions. As far as the uh, career path, the different roles that I've played, the coaching experiences, um, the times that I've skinned my knee and made, you know, made and continue to make mistakes no wouldn't change any of that no then that's a completely uh, completely valid answer i've got no problem with that whatsoever <laughs> um five years time coaching where do you see it being in five years time ah oh, five years time i would say if this doesn't already occur in five years time and, I, and i'm thinking purely technical path now or technological path i should say Things are advancing so quickly that there are um, things that have that have been made available to us in the last few years that we never would have dreamt of before. So, for example, uh, I remember going to a national training camp at the AIS in Canberra in ninety must be ninety four, I think, and we had eight biomechanists in the lab at the AIS in Canberra, Australian Institute of Sport for International Listeners. Um, eight biomechanists each in front of a monitor, the golfer hitting a shot would have uh, different markers on them and they would have to be manually digitized by each biomechanist into their computer for every shot. So we're talking hours of work on one golf swing. They were standing on a, a force plate which was embedded into the the um, the concrete floor of the biomech space in AOS, so you couldn't move it. And then the cameras were all fixed cameras. So we've gone from, you know, a multi-million dollar setup with eight biomechanists to using something like KVEST, where you just you can put it on a player, have them hit shots anywhere and gain information. The 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 platform that was fixed into the ground, we now have things like um uh, like body track which is a, a flexible mat that can be placed in a bunker, let alone on the ground, and getting you know very useful information. And, and, and there's other technologies like that. But I think the one that I don't know whether it exists is actually the use of um, holographic information. So let's say we have a player who is, um, you know, whatever age they are, and you have a, let's say, a model of a swing and this is where we can certainly get into plenty of debate, but um, say a model movement that a player of whatever age, um, gender, uh, physical ability sort of can move in and then they can match their movement to that holographic image. The only, the only issue with that, of course, is that it starts to get a little bit standardised as far as what you expect of a golf swing, but that, that could be quite helpful for, for different players. Really cool idea there. I think that'll be um yeah, and it, 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 everything's changing so quickly. So I don't think that's far away. I think that'd be a pretty cool little teaching tool to have on your in your arsenal when you're out there giving lessons. Yeah, and then you've got cool. a three D image and and your three D image overlaid, and then you can spin it around and have a look where the the movements are the same and where they're different, and away you go. I like it. I like it. Lucky no so, one else is listening to you know, that that's idea. It. <laughs> As I said, it's a real quiet podcast at the moment, so <laughs> we get we'll have to get out there and paint that first, and then hopefully we can get it get it started. If someone does um, give it a go, go for it. Yeah, yeah. For that question, I'll be the first in line to put my hand up to to apply it as a coach. Yeah. So you said you're coaching at Yarra Bend in Melbourne. Yes. Where else can people find you online? Have you got any Twitter handles, or f obviously you've got a YouTube channel? Yep. Um, everything is. It, 
most things are either they're all under my name, Peter Knight, or Peter Knight Golf. So so I've got a, a website, peterknightgolf.com.au. Uh, my Twitter is Peter Knight, Peter Knight six, I think. Um, and I obviously then, don't use Twitter a lot. <laughs> you can tell how much I use it. But YouTube's the main, uh, my main platform for um, broadcasting, broadcast communication, which is um, Peter Knight Golf as well. So yeah, just googling that or searching it on YouTube, you'll you'll find me without too much trouble. I would think. Uh, Facebook's the same. Peter Knight Golf have a a page on Facebook. Um, yeah, so easy to find. I'll certainly put links to all those all those sites in the episode description so you mm-hmm. can check those out there and um, you'll see the promo clips or you would have seen the promo clips the last couple of weeks as well so you can they'll point you in the right area as well. So, again, Peter, thank you so much for your time. You've always been one of the most open professionals that I've ever come across. Um, even early in my career, um, you're only always only a phone call away, and I certainly appreciate that as a golf coach. Um, some of the, the higher-up coaches sometimes aren't quite as open to um, essentially kids contacting them, but you've always been someone who's always been open to having a chat and a conversation. So I certainly appreciate that, and I certainly appreciate your time today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And um, I think we'll definitely get you back for a second episode. So, again, thank you so much. And everyone out there listening, please subscribe to the podcast and spread it out there. And hopefully we get a few more people checking it out soon. Mm-hmm.